0: Welcome to episode 32 of the Media Sport podcast series. I'm presently sitting in Old Parliament House in Canberra, just down the hill from New Parliament House, attending the 2019 conference of the Australian and New Zealand Communication Association hosted by the University of Canberra. I'm sitting with Michael J. Sokolo, who is an Associate Professor in Communication and Journalism from the University of Maine in the US. Michael's been in Australia as a 2019 Fulbright Scholar. He's a media historian whose research centres on America's original radio networks in the 1920s and 30s and his scholarship has appeared in journals such as Journalism and Mass Communication Quarterly, the Journal of Broadcasting Electronic Media, Technology Culture and a range of other journals. These articles cover a range of really interesting topics, such as the myth of the 1938 War of the Worlds broadcast, radio advertising and social psychology, and the creation of the New York Times op-ed page. Significantly, Michael is the author of a new book, Six Minutes in Berlin, broadcast spectacle and rowing gold at the Nazi Olympics, which is published by the University of Illinois Press. He was awarded the 2018 Broadcaster Story Award by the Library of American Broadcasting Foundation and the Broadcast Education Association for 6 minutes in Berlin. He's also a former broadcast journalist who's worked as an assignment editor for the Cable News Network and is an information manager for the host broadcast organization at multiple Olympics: Barcelona, Atlantic, and Atlanta, and of course Sydney in 2000. He remains a regular media commentator, and his most recent contributions appear in Slate, The Washington Post, Politico, and The Boston Globe. And Michael, welcome to the Media Sport Podcast Series. Thank you. Michael, could you just talk about, you've worked in the media and journalism sector. How did you make the move into the academy?
1: Well, um, there's two. There's the push and the pull. I love media history, but it's the pull, and I always thought it would be fun to study that and examine that. And the push was, um, I was working for CNN in Los Angeles uh, during a period when you had the Northridge earthquake, the O.J. Simpson case, the Michael Jackson case, and it it was news, cable news, 24 hours a day almost. And I just, that kind of breaking news environment didn't exactly fit where I saw myself. So I was at Georgetown University for my PhD in Washington, D.C. And they have a great history program and they're also located in DC itself, which is a great journalism city. Mm. And while I was um, pursuing my PhD, I had different sort of jobs, like I worked at video monitoring service and I kept up my editing skills. And I worked at the Olympics in 96 in Atlanta and in 99-2000 here in Sydney while I was pursuing the PhD. because. Um, the uh, academic job market in the United States is extremely precarious and I wanted to have the journalism skills in case it didn't work. I wanted to keep thinking that I could be a little bit in both worlds.
0: And how's that informed the way you go about your scholarship, that, that sort of history in industry?
1: In two ways. The first way is I think there needs to be a lot more contextual depth uh, to journalism and to thinking about how we think about journalism. And the other way, which is kind of interesting, and I've thought about this a lot, is that um, I think journalists, and I think what I had learned about communicating with the public, whether it's through images on television or, or in writing, um, is something academics really need to learn through their process. Um, it's just not stressed enough. If, if you write in kind of the stilted academic style and learn the formula, you might be okay, you might not but it, hedging your bets by being able to communicate with more audiences is really important today.
0: And I said, Your focus on broadcast, now, of course, there's an enormous amount of literature on television, and when we, a lot of people think about broadcast, their mind goes straight to television, but you've chosen to focus on radio. Where, where does that interest come from, and why have you made that choice?
1: That comes from a very specific moment in my life, which was very short, uh, for about a year, not even, I don't even know if it was a full year, I had a job as the radio cataloger at the Museum of Television and Radio in New York City. It sounds better than it was because it was <laughs> literally writing writing computer cards summarizing old radio programs. That's what it was. Um, it, that's now called the Paley Center for the Media on 52nd Street in New York. And because of the queue of old radio programs, Um, was very backlogged. They had prioritized the best of radio in the 20s and 30s in America, the most important and historical stuff. So I would go in and I would write these summaries of these radio programs, and I just found it amazing, especially the the radio stars who are totally forgotten today, people in America like Fred Allen, uh, who was a comedian, who was very barbed and very sharp and very sort of witty, in a very modern way and we, we think back to the 20s and 30s, we think they were kind of corny, sort of vaudevillian kind of whatever, but no, it, it was really wonderful entertainment and, uh, and in sports, some of the sports events from the 20s and 30s, just amazing.
0: I mean the, the 20s and 30s historically, very interesting time of course, uh, the Wall Street crash, Great Depression, but also a time of great engineering and technological advancement.
1: Um, when I was doing my PhD, the internet had just, or the web had just really started increasing. I started around '95, and I defended my thesis in 2001, so um, it was before social media and all this stuff. And everybody was asking the same question: How is the web going to change us? And the analogous, the really analogous world that I saw was radio in the '20s, because there, there's so many of the of the parallels. The fact that it's live, instantaneous communication doesn't necessarily have to be point to mass it can be dynamic radio is much more dynamic than people know Mm. and um, and it came upon a society that wasn't necessarily prepared for it or framed it so the cultural framing of it there were so many parallels that it really struck me as a as an unexplored and undiscovered place
0: and that brings us to the book six minutes in berlin now It's an enormously significant event in the history of sport and media, which I think is something your book speaks to extremely well. So let's take it in two parts. In your mind, what's the significance of the Berlin Games as a sporting event and spectacle? As
1: a sporting event and spectacle, it is that there was a design from the start um, to create an image of the host country allied with athletic excellence, but it really was to take the Olympic Games and turn it into something much larger than the classic sort of salesmanship that the LA Olympics had embodied or, um, or the boosterism of the Amsterdam ones. Uh, they had really been a much lower scale. There was a global there was a kind of a global consciousness that the Nazis had in putting together the 36. I should be careful, the Nazis did not originally embrace the Olympics. It stands for everything they're against, right? Cosmopolitanism, peace, everything. But they were so shrewd and I talk about this in my book, that they reverse themselves very quickly because they realize there's a global consciousness that they could set themselves apart. So, they talked about this, um, uh, comparing themselves to closed totalitarian regimes like the Soviets at the time, that they were gonna be the open one and they were gonna make the world understand what a a nation of mass consciousness is. It was brilliant. But it took this kind of thinking of how we can leverage particular event and spectacle that created the modern olympics
0: it's interesting because most people who aren't olympic specialists or enthusiasts aren't quite aware that prior to 36 the olympics do not look like they do at that point that it changes the face of the olympics gives birth to a mega event but the role of technology in stadiums and, and the city, is that is this the sort of thing that drew your attention?
1: Absolutely. And and the broadcasting, everybody talks about, and we can talk about this in a sec, but everybody talks about television being introduced, by the because the Germans were in a race with the British to introduce popular television. Um, but TV didn't work at the Berlin Olympics, it, was, it needed too much light, it would have interfered with the stadium too much, it just looked like grey blobs. Um, uh, there's only one broadcast that we would really consider a, a true television broadcast, but radio was really the medium of it. But I want to just go back to one thing about the athletic excellence of the Berlin Olympics. Um, there's also a problem with this. There were fantastic athletes. There was a huge jump in performance between 28 and 36. Um, the Japanese swimmers in 32, the Jesse Owens records, the um, Helen Stevens um, The athletic performances in 36 are like nothing that comes before them. Uh, The world is getting better, and and there's an an introduction of drugs. There's the um, controversy over the famous soccer game between Peru and Austria. There's so many, and that's a different track, because nations around the world had decided that athletic excellence was something to pursue in a different way. And I talk about that in the book a little bit as well.
0: And just focusing on Berlin as a media event, you refer to it as a blueprint for sports broadcasting. After that moment, and I suppose explain how the what, what's the blueprint?
1: Well, this is an example of where my professional work and my academic work come together. So, when you go to an Olympics like the Sydney Olympics, you see something called the IBC, the International Broadcast Center, and it's the most astounding live television to be built for a single event. I mean you can go to broadcast house BBC and Rockefeller Center NBC. But this thing is put together for 2 weeks and it's the size of a of a mega stadium with hun- thousands of people working in it, hundreds of feeds 24 hours a day going out to the world and it's just a stunning thing to see. And the Germans they didn't call it the IBC, but they invented near the house the the Rundfunk, the the broadcasting. They invented that concept of creating. They built new shortwave relay transmitters to go around the world. They built, um, they call it the 40 nations switchboard. Uh, and they really emphasized these technological innovations that would create a, a world experience of broadcasting. And that's, you can take that 40 nations switchboard and see the IBC invention just 20 years later.
0: The obvious thing when you, you raise the Berlin games with most people is of course the issue of anti-Semitism. And it, what is it about the games as a vehicle? You, you, you mentioned that they were canny, they understood what was it. As a, as, a, as a vehicle either to provide cover for anti-Semitism or create the technologies to prosecute anti-Semitism, where does the game fit within the, the regime sort of uh, picture?
1: That's a, it's a great question and it's one that I think attracts everybody to Berlin. Mm. to to study it as academics, because we all wonder how could a xenophobic, racist, ideological regime like the Nazis, exclusionary, right, put together the world's most cosmopolitan, (laughs) peace-loving spectacle that had ever been seen. And I talk about this a little bit, as I say in the book, where they understood exactly what they were doing. They they even called it the Olympic Inversion, or, um, uh, there's a different name for it, I think I called it the Olympic Inversion where they announced they were going to subsidize travel marks. They were going to allow people to come in for cheaper. They were going to allow jazz. Jazz had been banned on the radio the year before. For three weeks, jazz could be played. It could be played in clubs, if by white orchestras only. Um, Very savvy, very canny. And that's where it fits in. To me, it's not so much about the ideology of the Nazi racism and propaganda genius. It's about the idea that they were master exploiters and flexible in a certain way about what they did. Now there's an interesting debate about how much they revealed of the anti-Semitism during the Olympics because William Shirer and a couple other American journalists supposedly got in a lot of trouble with the Nazis for talking about the signs coming down. Um, But uh, when I went back and I reviewed the reviews of the broadcast and stuff like that, many American journalists talked about anti-Semitism, especially in the Winter Olympics, in Garmisch, Um, but uh, so it's, it wasn't quite as unknown, it, it, it didn't work in that way, but it was so overwhelmingly a wonderful sporting event, the boxing, the, I mean there were so many other sports that that aren't famous from 36 were riveting, that we forget that, and and that's why it worked as well, the Nazis knew that would happen.
0: And it's interesting because the the popular image of the Berlin Games, and I think about the sport themselves, is of course Jesse Owens, who is used for all sorts of purposes um, in terms of you know walking past Hitler, his success over the German athletes, <laughs> even you know, movies made about him, uh, fictionalised. And then we also have Lenny Reifenstahl, innovations in filmmaking. But you've chosen rowing, and I just want to read a short quote from the start of your book. Six minutes in Berlin is the story of an event lasting a bit more than six minutes between 6.02pm and 6.08pm European Central Time on 14 August 1936. In those moments, an Olympic event was beamed across the globe, relayed to broadcast transmission towers and listened to by tens of millions, if not hundreds of millions, people simultaneously. The event was the 8 oared crew race concluding the Olympic Rowing Regatta. Why? Tell us about this event. I mean, why rowing? As I say, given the popular stories, you've picked this... One, you've written a whole book around a rowing race. What, what is it about that race? Okay, there's
1: two or three aspects to this. The first is personal. All research is me-search. I was a rower. I rowed at Columbia University. I rowed for King's Crown Rowing Association. I loved rowing. Um, so I, was, uh, I personally loved rowing and um, that's the first reason. Second reason is I found an oral history from the LA84 Foundation of a member of this boat um, when I was researching something else and I couldn't put it down. It was riveting because the race is so dramatic. The third is that um, when I did look into it a little bit and was collecting string, rowing was huge on radio in America and here in Australia as well, by the way, um, and England. Uh, rowing was a huge interwar sports coverage for many reasons. The, the, for instance, rivers ran through all the big cities. Um, they, Unlike a boxing match or a baseball game or a cricket match, You knew if a race was to start at 6 p.m., it would be over at 6.05 or 6.06. So, for scheduling, they were very easy to do. For relay lines, since they're rowing through cities on rivers, you could get to the transmitter very easily. So, you could test out innovative programming. The very first sport broadcast in Germany was a rowing race in Hamburg in 1925. The very first sport broadcast in England was the boat race. The very first sport broadcast in the United States, 1923, on the Harlem River was a Columbia Penn U.S. Navy race to test out to test out a new type of technology. Because they were rowing right through downtown New York. And, um, and I should say, part of the reason rowing made so much sense was it appeared in all the newspapers. So you had the fan base built in to air a rowing race and the technology made it easy. Now the other thing about it is rowing was huge in the late 19th century And we forget how close the 1920s were to the 1890s, just one generation. And so the big, big sports of the last, of the tail end of the 19th century, horse racing, boxing, rowing, were massive. And then they sort of change and transfer when you get the rise of the celebrity athlete after World War II with television and all those things. And so I I went back to this moment to say, here was a celebrity sport that sort of, emblematic of this transition. And I, I talk about the, the coverage, the incredible coverage of this rowing eight in American newspapers. They appeared in primetime radio as on a show. They were covered in Time magazine, Life magazine. The New York, The New Yorker magazine had a rowing correspondent in the 20s and 30s. It, it, the column was called The Oarsman, and it followed the races all through the season. So it was really a different world I was trying to capture in that way.
0: And tell us about the progress through the... The meat generally up to the gold medal. I mean, how it's say There's it obviously narratives get built through. That's what why the Olympics work so well. So the the, the progress of the eight, the personalities in it.
1: Well, there's the personalities. I interviewed a couple of them, and it was great. It was wonderful. And um, and and the race itself is very dramatic. I don't want to give it away because I mean we know they win the gold, but <laughs> the way they win it is uh, is is astonishing um, because of the overcome. But one of the things that made it really big in the United States was that, and again, here's people forget, Jesse Owens won all four medals in the first six days of the Olympics. And then, the Olympics are two weeks, so over those two weeks, America started losing. The Japanese won the marathon, they won many swimming medals, Um, Helen Stevens had won track and field, the Americans had dominated. But the Germans, in the last three days of the Olympics, won something like nine gold medals. America only won one in this rowing race. And, um, and so that made the listenership, which had grown over these two weeks, huge. And it made it a much more intense moment. And the other thing I'd say, there were no rights fees. So the Germans gave this content for free. And In America, we had two competitive national radio networks at the time. One was junior to the other. And it thought, if we air more Olympics, we can compete with NBC. That was CBS. And so both um, needed promotional material. And this rowing race, because America never lost the gold in the eight, never. And they knew, going into this, that it would be the most challenging uh, regatta for an American ever. It, it, it raised the, the framing, the, the, the speculation about the race, the suspense, really to fever pitch by the time it started that day.
0: There's some wonderful images in the book. Um, I mean, just to give an indication to listeners how big this event was. We're used to the march past in the Olympic Stadium with Hitler, with doing the Nazi salute. But you've got images of Hitler and Hermann Goering celebrating German victories at the regatta. So. This was obviously a focus for the Germans as well, as well as something that I'm assuming you know, a large audiences in, in America are listening to. It. If we see the, the stadium as a site that has now been, since been read as a contest between Jesse Owens' african Americanness versus Aryan ideology, what, what's going on at the rowing like, like, in contrast?
1: Um, the German record in the 1936 Berlin Regatta has never been equaled. In six races, five golds, one silver, uh, or is it, no, it's a bronze, I'm sorry. Five golds, one silver, one bronze. The British pair got the gold. So seven races, five golds, one silver, one bronze. Never been equaled before. The Nazis had prioritized the rowing. Um, the Americans had beaten them easily up until this point. Uh, uh, the, when the Americans arrived and the British arrived, they were stunned at the, because the other thing is both the Italians and the Germans didn't enter their best crews at Henley. They, did, they held back. They did a lot of suspenseful things. Um, so the Swiss were supposed to be the best, but then the Americans showed up and this German crew was unbelievable, as was the Italian. But, but the Italian wasn't a surprise. They had won silver in Los Angeles. Um, and that's, that's part of this. So they knew Hitler was coming. They knew they had invested all this money in the Rungel. And they had identified rowing, and this gets to modern Olympics, just like modern host countries, and Australia did this in 2000, identified underserved events to raise the medal count. Um, the Germans had identified rowing as a place they could compete with the English and the Americans, and it worked. And, um, and so it was a great successful day. It was the most successful day, the regatta day, of the entire Olympics in terms of the medal hall the Germans won.
0: Mm-hmm. And that's
1: why Hitler... That's why Hitler and and Goring were out there, uh, because they knew this would happen.
0: And how does this event change radio and the markets for radio, and the technologies and the audiences, the way we think or the way America in particular thinks about these things?
1: Okay, three ways. First way, the technology. The actual actual, um, type of transmitter that is used for global shortwave is innovative in Germany. And they did this knowing that it would be immediately employed for propaganda. So they had this ulterior motive. They were investing a fortune but it really wasn't about the Berlin Olympics. And I'm not going to pretend it is. They, they said it was, but immediately they formed the world's most clear shortwave, global shortwave relay for their broadcast to the United States and to South America. And these are directional antenna And to South Africa as well, to the Boers in South Africa. Um, and and. So that's the, that's the technological aspect that changes. There is radio before 19, global radio before 1935, and there's global radio after 1936, and they're very, very different. And you can hear it in the recordings. You can hear it in the recordings here in Australia, and you can hear it in things like um, the Joe Lewis Max Schmeling fight. Uh, the Germans had terrific microphone innovations and relay innovations. That's the first, the technological. The other thing that changes is you bring all these sportscasters together in 1936. And CBS allied with the British Broadcasting Corporation, the ABC, Australian ABC had Henry Hay, there, and they're all learning from each other in rhetorical address and style. And so you have uh, uh, Abrams, a very famous call of Jack Lovelock's, where he's extremely emotional. Jack, go Jack, go, go, in the call. And it's riveting radio. It's powerful radio. And sports announcers did not do that. That was not considered you know, even in America today, if you root for one team too much, you're called a homer. And, and uh, you know, you're supposed to be a little bit dispassionate, a little bit more um, neutral in, in the reporting. All that changes in Berlin, and they're watching each other, the announcers. The Americans learn from the British, the British learn from the Americans. And so you get sports broadcasting, it's much more descriptive, like, like radio commentating pre-1936. It becomes what we recognize as sports broadcasting after 36. The Giants win the pennant. The Giants win the pennant. All these famous calls that we know are really post-36 because you're allowed to be emotional on the air more.
0: Which brings us to what you've been doing in Australia.
1: Well, what I've been working on, and it's fascinating, is um, is the radio sports and nationalism in the 20s and 30s. But I actually think... Australia has not gotten the credit it deserves for pioneering this type of radio address, and I'm working on a peer-reviewed article about this, because um, Australia didn't have the rules the British and American did in terms of address. The ABC tried to enforce it, but the commercial broadcasters, I'm thinking here of people like Charlie Bodd and um, others, and he would say these little poems during the cricket matches, and rickety Kate and he'd introduce characters, and he brought entertainment to sports in a way that did not exist in England, did not exist in Germany, did not exist in England, in the United States um, pre-'36. And he did that as early as 1930 and 1931 here. Now, it wasn't national. It was Melbourne, just to be clear. And that's fascinating to me because Australia has never gotten credit for this uh, pioneering work, really, and pioneering style. And um, so that's what I'm studying. I'm studying the nexus of sport broadcasting, um, and national identity uh, in Australia yeah. in the 20s and 30s.
0: And you, yeah, the title of your paper at this conference is Australians are the Greatest Sport Loving People in the World Sport Storytelling and Narrative Nationalism on the Australian Airwaves, 1925 to 1940. What have you discovered or that perhaps surprised you beyond this innovation that you just mentioned? But also, you know, what are the things that have made you reflect on the state of US broadcasting in contrast to what's been going on in Australia?
1: Well, the the first and most obvious one is horse racing. Mm -hmm. Uh, Gambling is massive in Australia and it has a massive cultural history and it is not thought about. The touts and the gambling and the odds... It is simply not thought about the same way in the United States, even in the 20s and 30s, even with Seabiscuit, even with golf. They are huge sporting events. It's one of the top three attended sports in the United States. I'm not pretending. It's not huge. I'm saying the way Australians um, employed radio to facilitate gambling, Americans were extremely sensitive about that. They didn't have that here for whatever reason. Um, so that was one big surprise. But you have to be here to learn about the whole the punter, the idea of the person who just drops a couple bucks on a horse race. Um, and, and, you know, Guys and Dolls in America, the opera is about illegal gambling, so I'm not pretending it's not there. It was just much more open here that that's what is happening. That was the first surprise. Um, the other surprise that I found kind of interesting is what's, uh, this is not surprising to Australians at all, but the cultural cringe. The idea that if we allow sports broadcasting to represent us internationally or nationally, or if we put money into it, or if we really think about what it is doing in terms of shaping radio address and everything, there must be something wrong with it. Because we Australians can't excel. We can't innovate, we can't excel. We must be like London, we must be like... And actually, fascinating to me, I found in some of the old radio magazines, they really liked the German model, at at least the radio, because it was uplifting, it was the opera, it was educational without politics and those kind of things. Weimar, I'm talking about pre-Nazi. There's just a sense that because we're Australian, we can't embrace what we're doing really, really well, even on the commercial
0: side. I suppose you've obviously had a chance to live in Australia for six months with your family, and you've been to sporting events. I mean, what's the, the compare and contrast experience or your experience in the U.S.?
1: Well, a couple things. Um, They love the sports here, the members. We've been to the rugby, the Brumbies, and we went to a footy. Um, I did not know. Here's here's some ignorance before I got here. First is, I had no idea sports were so regional in Australia. So I had no idea that it was the Victorian Football League until the 1980s. And I had no idea that there were professional teams that came from 20-block neighborhoods in Melbourne, like Richmond or whatever. Teeny little areas. Um, That's not like the United States at all. and that made this nationalism on the airwaves so much more difficult um, because people really excelled at different sports in different areas. That was, that was a bit of a surprise. The other thing that was interesting to me is before I got here, Australia does have a reputation for being laid-back and understanding about race in ways that America isn't. So, so uh, I see you shaking your head, but let me, let me just explain. <laughs> in sport history, that's because Jack Johnson can come here. And he can fight a white man. Mm-hmm. And he cannot fight a white man in the United States. So Americans kind of think, wow, you know, he could come, he could make money. he could." Johnson himself says he got treated very well here by the Australians. So the, it kind of has that reputation of sort of the fair game kind of, you know, athletic excellence. And you can even translate that to Steve Irwin and dealing with nature in that way. Um, but when I got here, I realized um, the same kind of... Uh, racial sensitivities here, it's just hidden in a very different way. And when it breaks through here, it's much more cataclysmic than when it breaks through in the United States. So an example would be Jesse Owens in 68, right? Um, the American Black Power thing. You have George Foreman waving a flag. You have the Black Power protest. You have Americans doing, you know, going crazy on race in the 68 Olympics. And you have Jesse Owens saying it's the wrong thing to protest here. Um, so we kind of let it all hang out. <laughs> I mean, we have, not, we have Avery Brundage, who I truly believe in some ways was a Nazi, it, for different reasons. We can, But <laughs> I know that's controversial to say. In the States, it's a little controversial to say. International sport historians know. In America, because of all the money he left to the University of Illinois Olympics, and all that, he, was, he, he wasn't a card-carrying member of the Nazi party, but he supported fascism and all that stuff. Um, and he threw them out. He threw... When the racial sensitivity happened, but he, that's not really American in the sense of this big messy racial thing. When it happens here, it's so intertwined because sports is so important to Australians. So the guy who pointed to his skin, um, what's Nicky Winmar? Nicky Winmar
0: played for St Kilda against Collingwood at uh, Victoria Park in the nineties.
1: Perfect example, or it's it's huge here. It becomes a. Existential question about who you are as Australians, or Israel Falau and the GoFundMe page because people are flooding in. Are we religious? Are we secular? It expands here because you don't have that breathing space we have. Um, You know, we have Muhammad Ali doesn't go to fight in Vietnam. Incredible American hero lights the torch in '96. I don't see that happening in Australia. I don't see because you're not. And please correct me. And I don't want to sound ungrateful for the floor. But I don't see Australians capable of having the same kind of conversations we have in the United States, because for whatever reason, it's just far too sensitive.
0: A question I ask of all my guests, could you recommend a book that you believe listeners should read?
1: I will say that um, the book, well, first of all, I love compendiums like H.L. Mencken. You can't go wrong with a Jimmy Cannon sports writing uh, compendium or an H.L. Mencken. So... We'll leave those aside for now, that style of writing. Uh, the book that really made me a historian, the book that I read that made me think, wow, this is communicating um, so beautifully, stylistically, while at the same time creating a persuasive historical argument, was um, The Great War and Modern Memory by Paul Fussell. And, um, he looks at British and American memoirs of the First World War, well, really, all British. and It's wonderfully written. It's like an elegy. It's, it's just a beautifully written book of history about how incredibly, deeply wounding the First World War was, how there was a world that was absolutely destroyed and could never be recovered before 1914, and a world that came after. And, uh, and I remember thinking, wow, if I could learn to write like that, if I could try to write like that, if I could try to harness my evidence and be persuasive, that would be just such an amazing goal. So that's the book I would
0: recommend. Thanks for sharing your insights. It's been actually lovely uh, getting to meet you and I wish you a really safe journey home with your family. Thank you very much.